The Redemption of Ryan Leaf. This is Alabama. We are a football state, so there's little doubt that you don't know who Ryan Leaf is. You probably know him as the biggest draft bust ever. Well, I am here to tell you that there is way more to Ryan Leaf than that. It's an incredible, beautiful story of redemption. Uh, he's very uh, humble in saying that his story is a lot like everyone else's, but um, I would argue that, it, that it's not and that God is using him in a really big way. And you're going to hear about today uh, his story from making $5 million a year uh, as a top prospect in the NFL uh, to falling into addiction and landing in prison uh, and how God really took him out of that and is using him uh, as service to people as part of his recovery. Really, really good. And then also uh, for people who have joined the fight and have become members of 1819 News, he's going to dive into the NFL Players Association uh, and their treatment of players. Um, it's, it's pretty bombastic and incredible. Um, definitely something you'll want to tune in for. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome everyone to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of this here podcast. Have a really great episode today. Alabama is a football state. There's a couple things we do well. That's football and political corruption. <laughs> we're usually focused on the other thing, but today we're going to focus on the football. Actually, we do a lot of football with Gene Stallings and John Hannon and all kinds of other people. But either way, um, that's going to be a primary focus. You guys know my background, my history, um, you know, drug addiction. Uh, I was a drug dealer, went to prison, got saved and all of those different things. And so um, testimonies are near and dear to my heart, watching God work in people's lives uh, and bring people from tragedy to triumph. Um, so we have an incredible testimony uh, today. Uh, Ryan Leaf, I'm sure the people in Alabama know that name well, and we're going to be hearing his story. But before we jump into that, I want to tell you guys, if you've not joined the fight, please do that. What do I mean? What does Brian mean, join the fight? Well, we're a nonprofit news entity, uh, and that means that we are funded by people who benefit from the work that we do. We think that's a, a great model. Uh, for news is to be paid for by the people as it is the people who we seek to serve with our deep dive investigative journalism, uh, with our information, basic information and why things matter, as well as the stories that are good, true and beautiful uh, about this great state. And so please join the fight, financially contribute to the work we're doing uh, as you guys are the ones that make it possible. And another note that I always say, if you're watching this on YouTube, don't because they cancel about every third episode because they can't handle the truth, as Jack Nicholson would say. So there's that. And again, 1819 News, as always, we're pursuing a free and flourishing Alabama with your guys' help. So without further ado, welcome in to the studio, Ryan Lee. Ryan, how are you? Brian, well, nice to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. Uh, the, the audience probably knows this. I have to have my headphones, otherwise I don't function properly. <laughs> I uh, it's, it's a weird thing. So I have mine on. He does not. But that's okay. Um, we need me to function. We need him to function. So this is what we're doing. Um, you know, uh, Ashley is the one that sets up my podcast. She really runs the entire company, like keeps everything on the track. She's, I know how that is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, my, my wife does the same yeah. thing in our business and in life. Yeah. Yeah, so so. Um, she does a, a fabulous job. And uh, she saw that you were coming to town and said, we got to get him on. He's got an incredible story. It's right at the alley of what we're doing. And so, um, you know, I obviously heard the name, the story of what you saw on TV. 
but you have a, a, a much better and deeper story of, of redemption and recovery. And uh, I guess you would call it mental health um, that I think everyone needs to hear. So I wanted to bring you on uh, and tell people um, the story that they don't know about you. Well, I don't think it's, uh, you know, I don't think my story's unique in any way. I mean, I just listened to your story and it sounds very similar yeah. to mine. So um, I, I think that there's some unique qualifiers when you deal with football, NFL, yeah. millionaire, prison, yeah. right? Those are those are some unique qualifiers. Doesn't make it a more interesting story, a more powerful story, or or, or a better story at all. It's yeah. it's it's just my story, and uh, and I would argue that uh, I've spent the last week and a half in the state of Alabama traveling around speaking. Uh, at different venues for summits around this. And I, I implored every uh, individual in the audience, if I said, if I invited you up here to tell me your story, it would it would have just the same impact, especially if you're still here, yeah. if you overcome adversity and everything like that. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from a small town, uh, grew up, you know, very entitled, um, you know, very privileged, uh, not certainly what you would consider a product of your environment. If that was the case, you know, I would have never ended up in a prison cell mentality. Great parents. Father was a two tour Vietnam veteran, came home, got spit on, still kept going, trudged, started a business, raised three kids. Wow. Hero, right. Of mine. Um, Where were you born? Great Falls, Montana, Montana. So country boy, um, very similar to Colorado, probably where you grew up. I'm in the Mount Rocky mountains there. Uh, I am the only first round draft pick ever. In the state of Montana, wow! There are more first-round draft picks in the Manning family than the whole state of Montana <laughs> ever. So I thought I was unique, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, my heroes were were the Fab Five. Yeah. It was Jalen Rose, it was Chris Weber, it was those guys, and very conservative, very white, uh, where I grew up, and so that wasn't necessarily as well received. I wanted to be like them, and I knew that was my only way. I thought to get out. Yeah. There was not a trailblazer. There wasn't a, a you know, so I was making omelets, uh, breaking a bunch of eggs along the way, just trying to figure it out. Yeah. Wasn't in t- incredibly popular. Uh, I looked at people who drank and did drugs as morally corrupt people. Yeah. Uh, and I wasn't going to be them. I was going to be different. Um, and, and my hometown didn't necessarily like that, right? My, my home state. And they, they shamed, they pretty much shamed this kid. They made me feel like I was a bad, bad kid. Uh, and, uh, cause I didn't know and understand what shame was. Um, but also I was just a kid and they were these adults. And so I resented the, uh, the heck out of, uh, out of Montana. And I knew I needed to get out of that place and, and that's how I was going to be a success. So that's how, that was my, I guess you would say, uh, my drug of choice was competition Yeah, and that, that fed it. And, and I fed that my entire life in high school in college where we won, where we won championships, where I was a Heisman Trophy finalist, to the NFL, where I was the number two overall pick and the highest paid player in the NFL history at the time, all those things. That that fed it all. Yeah. Um, but like anything, whether you're starting NFL quarterback or, you know, you know, any other human being, you are you are the same. You know, you're flawed. And uh, your flaws are are at, at a much higher level when you're trying to be a starting quarterback in the NFL. So those flaws were on full display when when failure started to become something that was was happening, and I, I failed a bunch, and I just didn't realize how much I was failing growing up. I just had the ability to step out on the field and self-correct all of that. Yeah. The, the highest possible level, you can't do that. Yeah, and uh, and I didn't. Uh, you know, 
I, I think the the better theme of my story is is how to fail. Yeah, and uh, and I didn't fail well. I, I did it the the negative and toxic way so much so that I was out of the league in five years because of my boorish behavior and uh, and and my poor play. Because when you're battling everybody else you know, week in, week out, and then playing the best defenses in the world, you're not going to be successful. You just aren't. Yeah. There's 12 successful guys a year usually. Yeah. That's what makes it so amazing Yeah. Uh, at their at their success. And I wasn't. And so I had a ton of expectation on me. I think kind of the way I crashed and burned, being drafted alongside arguably the greatest to ever play and, and Peyton Manning as a quarterback, um, I was labeled a bust. And I was I, I cared so much about what other people thought of me that that was – that was humiliating and embarrassing. And I started to believe it. And it took me down a path where I just quit this job that I'd wanted to do since I was four years old. And I thought everything would be fine, but my name just doesn't go away. It just doesn't. Every year, April comes around, the draft happens, my name gets brought up, Jamarcus Russell's name gets brought up. Guys who had a ton of expectation who didn't succeed. And there, there's examples of it every single year. But uh, who I was drafted alongside, I think it makes a big difference. The start of the internet and just the expectations that were on me and, and how I went about my business. So, um, you know, I can never escape it. I yeah. can never escape it. And I think I was just, I didn't want to feel any of that. And, uh, um, you know, I had, I had taken Vicodin before in my life because I've had 15 surgeries Yeah, and, uh, I took it and, and I had taken it for, for physical pain. And now I was about to take it for for the emotional pain that I was in. I'd love to blame the fact that I was a drug addict on the on on why I wasn't a, a, a good quarterback in the NFL. That was going to be my question, as if but I didn't yeah. start abusing it until after I was done. Interesting. So it was it was it was me. I was the problem on why I wasn't a success. It wasn't the drugs. It wasn't other people. It was me. And uh, but this was now my coping mechanism, and I used it to numb myself, to not feel any of that thing. And I think I've been searching for that for a long time, just not to feel anything. And at first it was easy, right? It was just, you go to doctors, you show them the x-rays, you show them the scans. I was beat up for a living, right? I was physically beat up. I just wasn't telling them that I was dealing with all this emotional stuff and then the mental illness part of, uh, part of it. Yeah. And the stigma that exists out there so much that doesn't allow you to ask for help because I'd never seen another man or peer in my life do it. Especially top performer type. Right. You're growing up in also the cowboy culture of Montana, locker rooms, college, and the NFL. I'd never seen another peer actually say, hey, I'm really struggling here. Can you help me? So if you hadn't seen it, how are you expected to do it yourself? And so since I couldn't, um, I thought I was doing the next best thing or the wrong thing the right way. Yeah. Right. I was self-medicating. A doctor was prescribing it. It can't be bad. Yeah. Um. And that started an eight-year run of me just, you know, just trying not to feel anything. And when you develop a debilitating drug habit and you go from making $5 million a year to making $0 a year and you have an ex-wife and taxes and everything, like that money goes away. Yeah. It does until I'm at the bottom. Um, The bottom for me uh, was living back in my home state where I'm supposed to be the hero and I'm, you know, pretty much kind of vilified. Um waking up every morning, uh, you know, asking myself if I had pills and if I didn't, how do I get them? Did it always stay to Vicodin? Did it progress past that into Oxycontin or anything? Or is it? Nope. I was in, I was a, a, a opiate painkiller slash APAP guy for whatever reason. I, they gave me Oxycontin one time and it, it, 
it didn't work for me. I also didn't do the thing where you scrape off all the stuff and snort it or shoot it or I I ate it. I ate pills. That's just what it was. And so for me, it was Vicodin. It was Percocet. It was the, it was the mixture with the Tylenol that gave me the most effect. And the big, you know, I, I can't honestly tell you how I didn't like, um, OD on the Tylenol aspect, the acetaminophen, the amount I was taking, thousands and thousands and thousands of milligrams of Tylenol, right? Mm. And that's just, should have just destroyed my liver. And I think it was close to being that right at the end, um, because I was kind of getting sick um, from it. And, uh, And so I was just, you know, had to search for it. How did I get it? Doctors, the doctors figured it out. I started using my hometown, right? Uh, Going to open houses, pretending I was interested in buying the house, you know, having free reign. And, you know, nine times out of 10, there's an opiate painkiller in somebody's medicine cabinet. Just is, you know. Wow. Um, Back there, you know, 11, 12 years ago, every house had it in it. Yeah. You know, it just did. I ask my audience when I speak a lot to raise their hand if they currently have a a prescription painkiller in their medicine cabinet. You know, and... You know, five years ago when I was asking the question, you know, 75% of the audience would raise their hand. I think there's more awareness around it now. But yeah. still today, I asked the question when I was speaking in Birmingham here. And there was probably, I don't know, 25 to 30% of the people raised their hands. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's still very prevalent, right? And it's not because they have a problem or anything like that. They actually say that they're probably from two or three years ago and they probably should have thrown them out. And they just haven't. Yeah. They sit there. And that was my hope is that my hometown was like that. And it was everywhere I went, I'd find pills that were, you know, had been in there for a long, long time. The families probably would never even know they were gone. And and I had them and they were in my hand and they fed my habit up until the point where I started brazenly just knocking on doors and feeling the handle. And if no one was home, I'd let myself in and, and I became this burglar Wow! Uh, to feed the habit. Uh, I was found out um, for many reasons because I'm six foot seven and 250 pounds and I'm not a cat burglar, you know, and I, and people notice that type of thing. I was ordering them online. Uh, so they were being delivered COD. Postman knew something was up uh, until the drug task force finally showed up at my doorstep and arrested me. And uh, that's where it started. What What did they charge you with? They charged me with burglary yeah. and possession of a controlled substance. Okay. So in Montana, burglary is a 20-year sentence maximum. Uh, the possession charge is... Um, I think, I think, uh, a five-year sentence. So if consecutively they wanted to charge me to the max, it would have been a 25 year sentence Yeah, if they wanted to. And, uh, my attorney negotiated a plea deal. And I just remember sitting there, um, I negotiated a 10 year on the burglary and a, uh, like a two year on the possession. And, um, the judge came back and gave me seven on the burglary, two on the possession, and to run them uh, concurrently. concurrently. Yeah. So it ended up being seven. So I didn't, I didn't quite understand it. I was such a mess. Uh, I was a drug addict long before I ever took a drug, and this was the perfect example of it because I was in this in jail without the medication, and I was just the worst possible version of myself as you can imagine, more judgmental, yeah. fearful, and everything like that. And I remember just railing against my attorney while I'm being sentenced going, what the, what the, what's going on here? Yeah. I thought this was a 20 year possibility. Why am I getting seven years? In fact, I negotiated a plea deal for 10 years on one of them and you're giving me seven. Yeah. So I was completely asking, you know, I put my attorney under the bus and I was pretty much calling the, 
the, the judge into question about what he was doing and everything like that. Cause I didn't care. Yeah. I was like, put me away, throw away the key. Yeah. I am not meant for this world, for this society. Wow. I was just hoping to die. Did you spend any time in County at all? Or was it, were you? Yeah. Initially that's where I was right in, in County waiting for trial. Yeah. A lot of people bond out and I, I, I did. Some oh, I did the first, I did. And yeah. I was, I got arrested within 72 hours. <laughs> that's, gonna, that's my story. How'd you get six felonies? Well, there's this thing called bond. Yep. Bond out, catch case, bond out, catch case, bond out, catch case. So, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I did. The second time I got got thrown back in, I, I didn't get out. Yeah. And for the first 80 plus days, I spent in solitary confinement too. Yeah. Because it was supposed to be for my safety. Yeah. I never, I never found that to be true. I found every place I went in jail or prison, people were enamored with me and wanted to get to know me and yeah. be around me. No one wanted to hurt me. Um, I'm sure there was some point at some, that somebody said something that got back to the warden or the sheriff that was like, somebody wanted to make a name for themselves, but, yeah, it's but high profile, anything. Yeah. It's silly, but it's true. And I spent yeah. so, and the worst place, the worst place that I could be or anybody could be is in my brain. Yeah. Okay. And that's where I was for 83 days and it was bad. Yeah. It was incredibly bad. My mental illness just absolutely consumed me. Um, all of it. And then I was, of course, sentenced, uh, warehoused, given a number and sent on my way. And that's where it started. And nothing changed. Like I got worse. I got more angry, more, more judgmental. And then for 26 of those, you know, 32 months I spent in prison, you know, I didn't do anything. I sat on my butt, right? There's a reason why our country is the largest populated prison population in the world, right? It's another society, you know, it's where you go. It's not a deterrent. And I sat in there and I got fat and I uh, just didn't do anything to improve myself. I had a little 13-inch flat screen TV at the end of my bed that had the NFL red zone. You know, it's just a babysitter. Yeah. You know, it's another society and I didn't do anything to better myself. And so luckily for me, uh, my higher power, whatever that was at the time, um, showed up in the form of my roommate. And he was a Iraqi... Afghan war veteran. Uh, he had done something that probably a lot of people have done in their life at some point. And that's drive drunk. It just so happened that night he killed somebody when he was once driving drunk mm -hmm. and he was on leave. Uh, and he was 23 at the time and he would spend the next eight years in prison. And I watched him and he just, he had made amends. He wasn't resolute with being that person. And he tried to improve himself every single day. And I just thought, what how, how stupid is that? I mean, we're what's wrong with this guy. What's wrong with this guy? We're in prison. We're losers. No one, no one cares about us and no one cares that you're doing this. Yeah. And so, um, I, I just didn't understand it. And I guess one day he felt comfortable enough to confront me and he just confronted me about my attitude and everything. And he just said, I had my head buried in the sand that I didn't understand the value that I had for the men in there or for when I got out. And so he suggested we, go down to the prison library and help prisoners who didn't know how to read, learn how to read. Wow. And um, I haven't, I've had many of those like come to Jesus yeah. talks from coaches and mentors and family. And I just, you know, told everybody to get lost. Yeah. You know, I got this covered. Um, but I went and I can't tell you why, maybe because the substance had been out of my system for 26 months I still went begrudgingly. I remember walking down the prison hallway in my red jumpsuit with 
you know, just metaphorically like kicking rocks like a yeah. child thinking this is stupid. This isn't going to help me. He doesn't even know how important I am. Yeah. I mean, the irony of the guy in a red jumpsuit in a prison hallway still thinking he's important, I yeah. think, is the root of the problem Peak. here. Yeah. Right. Peak narcissism. <laughs> yeah. That's me. And, uh, and then I walked into this room where there were 50 year old men where you're in a place where you're supposed to show no vulnerability. A guy walked up to me and said, I, I, I had never learned how to read. I struggle with it. Can you help me? And I just, you know, my first, what's wrong, what's wrong with this guy? Yeah. What's he want from me? And it freaked me out and never seen it before. And so I started helping and I came back the next day and it was, you know, the same. And I came back the next day and I, started to realize some things a week had passed two weeks now a month. And I, I came to realize that I was uh, sleeping better. I was more personable. I was talking to my family a little bit more. And what I found it to be is that I was being of service to another human being for the mm. first time in my life. And I thought what I did on Saturdays and Sundays for y'all was me being of service. Yeah. And that's silly. It's, yeah. It is. And so that's where it started. A month passed, a, Another month passed, and now now I'm the, the TA for the substance abuse counselor, helping people through that aspect of things. And I knew it was going to have to be at the foundation of who I was when I got out or nothing was going to change. Like, it could never be about me again. It had to be about others. And if it was about me again, then I was just going to end up back in the same spot or most likely dead. Yeah. And what's ironic about the whole thing is when you make it about somebody else, like your life gets better. And I used to think to make my life better, it had to be about me, right? It had to be, it had to make my life better. Yeah. And uh, it just doesn't happen. I didn't know it was happening in the moment. Like it's, 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 I liken it to going to the gym. Mm -hmm. You don't go to the gym and the next day you wake up and look in the mirror and you look like the rock, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, I wish. It, it, yeah, me too, yeah. right? <laughs> it's, it's not a bolt of lightning, it's consistency. Yeah. It's about showing up. And so I knew when I got out that it would have to be at the, you know, the root of everything. So I walked out of prison December 3rd, 2014. So this wasn't like it was 20 years ago or anything yeah. like that, right? It's It's been relatively recent and with nothing. I had no money. I had no prospects. You know, my credit score was like 500. The one thing I did have was a place to lay my head. Mom and dad, who have unconditionally loved me, yeah. were there to pick me up that day. Most people don't even have that, a place to lay their yeah. head. And they just... The recidivism rate exists because they just assume that's the answer to come back to, right? Yeah. Let's, <clears throat> I want to hold that spot. I think this is good because there's point. a good joke coming here, people. Yeah. All right. Good. You guys stay tuned. I am enamored. I almost didn't even do a commercial break, but my sponsors wouldn't have liked that. Um, let's take a minute. Let's take a word from our sponsor and then we'll continue this incredible story of redemption. Hey, y'all. It's Allison Sinclair with Alabama Unfiltered. A lot of people ask me, what can I do to actually make a difference in DC and in my state government? And one of the most effective things you can do is write an old school letter to your elected officials. It seems super simple, but a written through the mail letter gets their attention much more than an email or a phone call. I use the Quick Letter app from my phone to write letters and it makes it so easy to write all of my representatives in DC and in our state a real letter in a matter of minutes. And so Quick Letter automatically determines your representatives and their mailing addresses. You write or dictate a letter on your phone and tap the name of every representative you want to receive that letter. And Quick Letter handles the delivery address, the return address, the greeting, the closing, the signature, the printing, stuffing, stamping, and placing your letter in the U.S. mail. 
Your governor, attorney general, state legislators, your U.S. senators, and congressmen need to hear from you. And it doesn't have to be elaborate. Actually, a brief, simple letter usually has the most impact. Send a quick letter today and every day. Go to quickletter.com, that's K-W-I-K, quickletter.com, or download the Quick Letter app today. All right, welcome back, guys. We are about to jump back into the redemptive story of Ryan Leaf. Before we do that, I do want to talk a little bit about our sponsor, Quick Letter. Jim Hicks has created an incredible app that allows you to make your voice heard to your representatives in an extremely convenient way. I can't recommend enough that you go to the app store on your phone, download the Quick Letter app today, and make your voice heard. For $1.99, and the more you do it, the cheaper it gets down to $1.49, you can have a letter written to your representative letting him know what you think about drug addiction, criminal justice reform, uh, school choice, any of these issues. We have a legislative session coming up in March, and they need to hear from you, and this is a really convenient way to do that. We can't uh, be more proud to have Jim Hicks and Quick Letter is the sponsor of this show, so please go there, um, your app store, Quick Letter app, download it, and start writing your representatives today. All right, so let's jump back into it. You were getting out of prison, <clears throat> had nothing, terrible credit score but you know by the grace of god parents that loved you unconditionally where you had somewhere to lay your head yeah I, I i didn't know what was what was ahead of me you know i didn't i work for the disney corporation now and uh you know like mickey mouse wasn't standing outside there going hey ryan come work for me <laughs> imagine that good joke yes i started doing that joke about six months ago in yeah. my speeches yeah and the first time my wife heard it she told me, don't you ever do that again. That is awful. <laughs> and now every time I come home, that kills. That yeah. kills in the room, everybody. So uh, <laughs> it was, there was nothing there. I had hope. Yeah. And I don't know, at the time, I didn't know where I had found this hope. I do now. I know it's because of what I was doing while I was in there. Um, so it had to be at the forefront of who I was. And that was the hope of it all. Got on parole, of course. Uh, needed to go to treatment. For my physical health, I had ballooned up to like 325 pounds. I was about to stroke out from high blood pressure. Uh, and my mental health was just, I mean, you do not go to prison to get healthy. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. And, you know, I asked my parole officer if I could go to treatment. And he looked at me like I was crazy, right? You don't, you want to go from an institution to another institution? Yeah. No one does that. And I said, so I'm going to be punished because it, I'm on, I'm going to be the precedent? Yeah. I think he just didn't trust me. I think he just assumed I the place I wanted to go was in Southern California. And I just think he assumed that, oh, he's just going to run for the border of Mexico and kill himself, you know, yeah. with, what, with drugs and whatever. So I understand that. You don't trust me. Um, he never said that specifically. Just he, they wouldn't let me, wouldn't issue me a travel permit and allow me to go. So I was stuck in this hometown where I'm the villain. And not only was I an awful football player and wasn't the guy they wanted me to be, but I also then victimized the community. Yeah. Right. And so it was just awful. It's toxic. The day I got out of prison, they ran a ran a cartoon in the, the local newspaper that said, Ryan Leafs out, lock up your medicine cabinets. You know, I mean, it just was not hospitable in any way, shape, or form. So for those three months, I had to manufacture ways to stay of service. Otherwise, I would have my muscle memory is things get bad, just numb it away, do what yeah. I've always done. And so I started doing little things like going down to the mission and the soup kitchen and the homeless shelter and trying to give back any way I can, donating time, clothes, things like that. And so that's what I did. Uh, and I don't know if it 
it, it got back to the parole officer or if he just saw some evidentiary proof over the next 90 days. But after three months of being out, he signed the travel permit for me to go to treatment in, in Southern California. And I would go down there and spend 90 days in treatment, working on my mental health, being diagnosed for my mental health, right? Clinical depression, PTSD, social anxiety disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, all these things, the whys. As anybody in my generation in particular, we want to know why we're doing something. Yeah. Why is this happening? Why am I this way? And so we addressed that. I addressed my physical health. I started, you know, working with a nutritionist. What you put in your body, especially when you get into your 40s, is so important to your long-term health. So we started effectively being able to attach to that because for three years, you know, I didn't use in prison, but I wasn't clean is the way I looked at it, right? Yeah. There was just all of it, the whole part of it. And so that's what the 90 days did. Um, once I got out, I had the fear of having to go back to Montana, so I, you know, Scraped, scrapped and clawed to get a job in Southern California. I got one with a sober living house where I would be a driver uh, and I would work with people who are new into recovery. And I thought, this is perfect. This is a, this is being of service. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm, and I would get paid for it. Right yeah. now the pay, of course, 15 bucks an hour, Yeah. much Southern different California. than <laughs> much different than $5 million yeah. a year. But I can tell you right now, I was miserable when I was making $5 million a year. I was miserable to be around. And now I just been offered a job for 15 bucks an hour. And I felt more value than I'd ever felt before in my life. So like my values had certainly changed. Um, and it was a different, um, you know, it was a different obligation. It was a different purpose. And it was the one I'd been searching for, I think. It wow. fueled me up. And that's where it started. Now, my boss who ran the company started having me speak kind of locally to some high schools and things like that. I didn't want to be in the public eye anymore. That yeah. was not, I just wanted to disappear, but be sober and have a, this, yeah. but like I said, like my, I, my name doesn't disappear. And so he started me doing that. And my sponsor started talking to me about the idea of, you know, uh, the only way for you to keep it is to give it away. And I didn't understand what that meant. What it means is the only way for you to keep this peaceful, unchaotic life that you've developed and created is to give away your story, essentially. Yeah. And so that's what I started to do. Started to give away my story, and it started to fill me up. Now, it's not, it's not great. It's not fun to rip off the Band-Aid in front of a bunch of people all the time over and over and over again. It's emotionally exhausting. You know, I usually crash back at the hotel when I'm doing these speeches and these things like that and, you know— lather myself in comfort food or something like that. Yeah. The best thing I probably could do is go down to the gym and run on the treadmill and stuff, get those yeah. endorphins up. But I, you know, we, yeah. we don't, you know, positive and healthy choices. Um, but that is what had become my life. And what that foundation has become is it allowed me to do so many different things, right? In the broadcasting world, which is what I went to college for, a communications degree I got at Washington State University. Now I'm able to do many different things and wear many different hats. I I work for ESPN and the Disney Corporation. I call games on the weekend for college football as well as NFL games. I have my own podcast. I have my own TV show. I do work on Sirius XM. I travel around the country and speak to teams as well as other community events and and, um, and summits and things like that. That's exactly the reason why I'm in Alabama right now. Um, you know, and it's it's transformed my life when I made it about other people. And it's hard, right? I got to remember, like when you go speak to a room full of people and you tell the story and when people talk about redemption and stuff, I don't like those words because it's just my story. It's given me the life of my dreams, yes, but it's not, I, I don't like 
you know, adjectives attached to it because life is still life. It's hard. Like it, it's, it's still hard. It doesn't go away. That's the part that nobody tells you. There's not a lot of preparation on that. Not in school where they like, all right, guys. Yeah, I know we're going to, we're going to talk about the Pythagorean theorem, but they just, they just need to look at you and be like, life is freaking hard. Yeah. Like, it is super duper hard. They didn't tell me that in prison either. I thought prison was hard. Then I had to go do life and I was like, live and, 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 and be responsible. And, and it was like, Holy cow, there's nothing. And it's not fair. For it. <laughs> yeah, and it's right. not fair. Yeah. And it, and it's it's about how you deal with it. Yeah. That matters. That's the that's the, the thing. So, you know, that's the way I kind of look at it as, you know, this one foot in front of the other, next day comes, try to do what you did the day before. Most likely you'll lay your head down and feel at peace uh because of it. And uh and you go from there. And it's given me everything. You know, I have a like to your point, you found this, you know, you found the love of your life. I did as well. Um, uh, we have a five year old son. You know, things that I never imagined were possible yeah. 10 years ago are now. Amen. And, uh, and in the, in the life I get to lead because of it. So there's a ton of gratitude. Um, never thought I'd be able to tell people that I was grateful for having spent, you know, 32 months in prison. I don't recommend it, Yeah, but, but I'm grateful for it. I had to be humbled in a way, um, to give me this life. So, um, you know, that's, that's the short version of the story. Um, but I think it's the it's the bullet points that that are right. Yeah, that's incredible. So um, you said a lot about sponsor, higher power, and being of service to others. Um, that sounds like it's right out of the big book to me. Why don't you talk a little bit about AA or NA? I'm not sure which branch you did, but what it means to you and what it did for you. Uh, well, it, it it was my it was my higher power when I got there. Yeah. Right. I mean, you're just, you're so fearful of, of the God word yeah. at the time um, that the rooms were my God, like yeah. the acronym G O D for me was a group of drunks. Yeah. And that fellowship carried me. And then ultimately my spirituality, my higher power became nature, yeah. you know, became because you I was locked up for so long. I didn't go outside early on. It was, you know, was out playing golf and being in nature and yeah. just, just knowing how, how small you are in this world. And when I went and and got the help that I needed was in California. When, when there are times where I feel maybe a little too big for my britches or, you know, I, I walked into the Pacific ocean. I walk down there, I walk into it up to my knees or my thighs. And then I look around and I go, look how, look, look how small you are in this world and what our higher power has built. I mean, this universe and what my higher power allowed for was for me to be, to live and be, uh, in a purposeful life. Amen. And so that's, that's, that's the journey I'm on right now. And, and what I can try to, and what I continue to try to do. It really is amazing. I almost want to do a whole show on that as, is you know, AA, who those guys were that started it. And just the, just, man, they do these huge national conventions, you know, and they fill up stadiums, yeah. stadiums full of people who would have been worthless drunks, dead in a ditch or filling a prison cell, which is me and you. Yep. Right. Yep. <laughs> um, and it, and it's and it's stadiums full of people who are you know living lives of service, being a net positive to society, being sober, and everything. It truly is um, amazing. And I guess because of the anonymous nature of the program, uh, it doesn't doesn't get a lot of accolades out there. But um, you know, I would there was rich people in there, there was poor people in there. It did you know uh, addiction does not discriminate, man. And and being in those rooms, you know, drinking coffee with a group of drunks, uh, as you said. Um, some of them, I mean, it gives me goosebumps. I almost want to cry thinking about it because well, yeah, it changed my life. I mean, yeah. it's the, it's the reason why I, I have the yeah. life that I have now. Yep. Yeah. So good. 
Well, man, I, I mean, there's a, a ton of places I I think we could potentially go. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time, and then I also want to do our um, behind the scenes segment. Well, I, I kind of wanted, yeah, yeah, I kind of wanted, your, I wanted yeah. to talk about why I'm here. You yeah, know? That, that's where I want to go um, to to close out. Tell me. Well, uh, Nick Saban, yeah. uh, the head coach at the University of Alabama. I don't know if any of you heard of him out there. Yeah. Uh, Sounds familiar. Rings a bell. Pretty good guy. Um, he was the first head coach to bring me in to speak to a team. Wow. Uh, I had been out of prison for a couple of years. Uh, ESPN had done a documentary. He knew Tom Rinaldi, who did the piece, reached out to Tom. Tom put me in contact with Coach Saban. So Coach Saban was the first coach to bring me in to speak to his team. It was right after they lost to Clemson in the national championship, right after Jalen Hurts' first season. And um, and I remember walking into his office, and, and every speaker that comes spends you know a few minutes with him before to kind of talk about shared values and what, what we want to talk about. And uh, uh, Ellis Ponder, his like, I call him the hand of the king, his, his yeah. right-hand man there, uh, walks you in and then stands outside the room, and it usually lasts five to ten minutes or something like that. Well, Coach, Coach and I spent like 45 minutes in there, and he heard Coach laughing. Uh-huh. And I came out and Ellis asked me, what, what were you guys talking about? And I said, I don't know. We were just talking. He's like, I have never seen a speaker spend more than 10 minutes in there with coach. And yeah. you got, and I said, well, that, that, that says a lot. Cause I went out and I felt like I did a good job in front of his, in front of his guys. Cause he cares yeah. so much about those young men. And sure enough, a year later, he's been a huge supporter of mine. He had mentioned me to the president of the university and the president asked me to come back and be a part of the university of Alabama's wellness part of his university and speak to the student body. And I did that. Uh, and then this opportunity happened. The University of Alabama, in association with the, you know, the vital initiative, uh, they brought me in to tell my story and bring awareness about the stigma people face around the substance use disorder. We traveled around the entire state. And I, I think that's a huge factor in all this. A lot of times when people do these types of things, they ask you to come to them. Yeah. Instead of you doing outreach to the communities. This was a huge part of it. I was in Dothan, Mobile, uh, Huntsville, um, Montgomery, and then Birmingham. So those are the, the cities I was in. I also did some work with the State Bar of Alabama yeah. uh, as well in Mobile. Um, this message is to bring the message to healthcare, law enforcement professionals, uh, in into eighteen nineteen news. Right. So go. this is this is you know this is service work at its finest. Um, you know, and 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 with the idea and the and, and the unknown of the future because you. You just control what you can control. Yeah. You don't know what anybody's going to do with the message. They may think you are, are full of it, um, or they may need it, um, and the right person may need it, and um, and that's what you hope. That's what yeah. you hope. That's where the hope comes from. And I can lay my head down uh, at night, okay with it, because I was I was part of the solution today, uh, and that's all I could control. Mm. That's good. So you got to go on the the Bama tour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> got to go through every all the states. Got to see different ways that people are addressing the issues, where they fall short, um, in terms of uh, you know it was it was really interesting to see at each venue. I always wondered how much law enforcement would be there for. Yeah. Um. And most of the time, I was not surprised there were not law enforcement individuals there. Yeah. They don't come to it. Uh, the people that are there are social workers or people who are working in the mental health space and things like that, where, you know, law enforcement usually sees, sees things in black and white. Yeah. They rarely see it as a nuanced problem. And when you can't see mental health, like when somebody's, uh, you know, when somebody commits a crime, it's either black or white. Yeah. You did or you didn't. When we have mental health issues, 
you can't see that. Yeah. And so that's hard to quantify. And so it's hard for them to understand. Also, they live in a world where you cannot show or talk about mental illness because guess what? They'll put you on leave. You may be, they'll remove your gun from you. You may not have a chance to get your pension or just all yeah. these things that, that stop uh, the momentum from that. So that, that, what that interests me in the state of Alabama, where, where the law enforcement agencies were along my travels. Birmingham was well represented by the law enforcement uh, um, and, and that was good to see yeah. the sheriff's department, everybody. So that was the interesting part. I love, I think Alabama's on the cutting edge when it comes to the, the substance use disorder and mental health issues. They, the university of Alabama has issued, uh, their first degree in so and substance abuse, yeah. uh, counseling and things like that. So they are, and I, I was talking to a bunch of people outside of the state of Alabama. And I said for all their shortcomings on other things, when it comes to the mental health crisis and things like that, they're pretty darn good when it comes to the substance use disorder. And it's one of the biggest, it's one of the most affected States in the country because of it. Yeah. Yeah. I had Steve Marshall on, uh, came on the podcast and, you know, he obviously has what, what happened with, with his, um, wife who yeah. passed away from it and everything. And, and he's the, he's the head law enforcement. Right. And I know he was uh, there today um, speaking, I think at the same time. I did. I got were, a chance yeah. to, I got a chance to speak with him and yeah. we exchanged information and hopefully we can maybe do some work together. Yeah. Cause it is. And that was the friction. And, and when he came on the podcast, he talked about, it was really interesting because he was very much giving the law enforcement side and I was very much kind of giving, and, and again, I'm, I'm not where most people are in criminal justice reform. You would expect me to having been to prison believe justice, you can't get rid of justice in the criminal justice point. There has to be justice. You have to face consequences. However, we this what we're facing with is a much deeper pandemic than COVID ever was. Oh, yes. Right. And it's and it's and it's crazy and it's affecting everybody and the fentanyl deaths and everything that we see going on. But where it really kind of became beautiful is he was, you know, making his points from the law enforcement point and I was kind of making ours. And we both came to stories where there was a, a girl that came up to him at Celebrate Recovery, uh, which he's really big into that, um, you know, he was, I guess, responsible for her getting incarcerated. And then when she was in jail, she, she, you know, had an experience with God changed her life. And then he bumped it or she bumped into him at a celebrate recovery thing and said, you know, uh, attorney general Marshall, I thank you so much for, you know, what you did because it, you know, I had to face the music and in doing so I actually met God and it was because you did those things. And I had a very similar experience with some law enforcement that, that arrested me. And I, and I dealt with some law enforcement in Colorado that were, that were the stereotypical bad cops that right. justifies the means they're, you know, Yosemite Sam type cops. Right. And then there was another group, um, uh, this guy named Sergeant O'Driscoll and, and his team that were above reproach. You could tell they cared about the people, but they also cared about justice. And, you know, I was about three years into my prison stay and wrote him a letter thanking him uh, for saving my life. I said, you know, you didn't run into a burning building and drag me out. But you, you know, you, you, you arrested me, but you also treated me with dignity because when he came into the, the reception area, when you're getting booked in, he came in and talked to me. He said, Brian, when are you going to change? You know, I've been doing this a long time and I see a lot of different people. He says, there's something special about you. You, you need to use this time to change your life. And so we ended up exchanging letters and stuff when I was in prison. And so you never, you never, and you just, you're in that moment. Yeah. So you can't see anything far ahead yeah. where somebody else has the, the wherewithal to, sh- to, to know that's possible in you. That's, I have the same experience. Yeah. I can't remember the DA. I can't remember my DA's name, yeah. uh, from great falls. Um, but same thing. Yeah. You know, he, you know, that there's an accountability. I was held accountable. There's consequences to my actions. In fact, if I'm not famous, um, maybe I just disappear and no one ever hears from me again. Yeah. Right. Uh, cause there's so many out there that, that are in the same position that I am. Yeah. And it, 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 it hollers to the idea that every life is precious and it needs to be saved. And that's, that's what individuals like that have been able to accomplish. Yeah. Man, that's awesome. 
we'll we'll wrap up this part of the show and then guys um we're gonna have a really great segment coming up that's exclusive for paid members so join the fight chip in five dollars a month ten dollars a month eighteen dollars and 19 cents a month the 1819 club am i right uh or any amount that you're able to do every month to support the work we're doing we're gonna be jumping in talking about um really the nfl and and their treatment of players and is their mental health something they care about injuries concussions Tua, demar hamlin all this type of stuff you know where does the 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 profitability and the personhood uh where do these lines cross so you're not going to want to miss that segment but and as always put your trust in god and keep your powder dry